if you're trying to find the story behind this, you'd be reading in Ezra chapters 5 and 6 and trying to put everything in proper context. So what we want to do now is to take this and we want to apply it to modern day life. And to do it, we've got to look to our Lord in prayer, don't we? Let's do that. And so, Father, I thank you now for who you are. You are the God of the universe. And while you orchestrate things globally, at the very same time you deal with matters personally. You get our attention. You speak to our hearts. Even in the midst of the turmoil of our days, you bring a calming influence. At the same time, with that hardened heart, you can create turbulence, and so they realize they're not going to find their rest until they find their rest in you. There's going to be a wide spectrum of people coming in and out of these doors today, tonight, weeks to come. Various points on that spectrum of loyalty or lack of to you. We want that pivotal understanding of the work of Jesus Christ on that cross and how Bethlehem relates to Calvary, Christmas to Good Friday, to Easter Sunday and beyond. So, Father, help us to see the big picture and then personalize it in this, in this day in which we live. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. We've come here again to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the New York Daily News is not where I go to get my biblical theology. But what fascinated me in these past days regarding what took place in San Bernardino is that the paper's screaming front page headline was, God isn't fixing this. And what fascinated me all the more was that normally that kind of thing would be left to the editorial page. But instead, this opinion was delivered in the front page and its headlines. Obviously, delivering some form of uh, an uh, assumption on the part of their editorial staff as to where God is in the midst of the big challenges and difficulties of life. Now, where is God in the midst of your challenges and difficulties of life? This would be an issue that the remnant there now in Jerusalem would be grappling with. The prior generation had seen this incredible assault upon the capital, Jerusalem. The temple left in array. Jews taken captive for 70 years. And now as prophesied by God, they would be able to return to their homeland but only less than 50,000 would do so at this point. 
and they're looking still at the ruins of the temple, that temple that would signify the presence of God. And some would be grappling with that question, but where is God, and where was God, and where is God in terms of why these things happen in the course of life? And maybe you wrestle with those kinds of questions as well. Evidently, the New York Daily News isn't wrestling with a question. They're just presenting an assumption. But what we want to do is to get people to start wrestling with the big questions. Why things happen the way they happen, and where is God? And even more so, what is God's means of fixing this? Which leads us to this passage. Because not once now, but twice on this day in December of 520 B.C., God has a message. He seems to be sending out his last-minute Christmas cards to the Jewish people. It's December 18th, 520 B.C., and what God is about to do is to explain, explain to these people about Messiah who is to come and God's strategy for fixing this. Now what I want to do is to narrow our focus once again to the Messiah. Messiah is just simply the Old Testament title, the New Testament title, Christ. Both of those are titles for the name for Jesus. And draw out for you and for me now two significant considerations that are found here to help us to better understand God's plan for fixing this and to see how it relates to modern day life. Now the first is going to flow out of verse 20 down through verse 22. We're going to phrase it like this. That first of all, in considering the Messiah... I want you to note with me the final deliverance promised by God. You say, but Gary, we're we're talking Bethlehem in the month of December. Well, God is speaking in the month of December, 520 B.C. And as he does so, he's going to project both through the first coming and to the second coming, tie it all together so you can see and I can see just how God goes about fixing this. In verse 20, you and I are informed that the word of the Lord came not once, but twice. A second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, December 18th. 520 B.C. Now, as we stare at that, we realize that the Word of God is central to everything that Haggai is communicating, which ought to be the case for you and for me as well. This is, again, why we work verse by verse through the Scriptures. Over and over again, throughout the book of Haggai, you and I will be informed that this is the Word of the Lord. And as the word of the Lord is presented here on this December day of 520 B.C., we are told here in verse 21 that Haggai is to speak this to Zerubbabel. 
Now, what fascinates you and fascinates me at this point is that in prior times, in the midst of Haggai's presentations, there is more than one person he's addressing. But now in this final presentation, he has narrowed the scope of his presentation and his audience to one particular person. And his name is Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel means literally the seed of Babylon. The seed of Babylon. But what interests me all the more is that Zerubbabel is of the line of David. Now God has promised in prior times to David and his descendants an eternal kingdom. I want you to capture the irony here that one of David's descendants that will lead towards Jesus Christ, his name, his name means the seed of Babylon, not the seed of David. In other words, what God is saying here at this point is that Babylon is not greater than my plan. Nothing and no one else is greater than my plan. Call it what you want, name it as you like. But I will fulfill my purposes, my plans, and my promise for my glory. Don't underestimate even that name. That name can't conquer God. God uses this man as part of this line, despite his naming for God and God's glory. And now he says, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. They have just returned, of course, from captivity, 70 years in the land of Babylon. And he says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. And you're saying, well, Gary, just last week we looked in chapter 2, verse 6, and said, thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea, and the dry land. And you and I remember, furthermore, that at the time in which the wise men approached Herod and informed him in the form of a question, where is he who is born, what? King of the Jews, the line, of course, running through Zerubbabel. That Herod and the people were what? All shook up. Now, do you see how God is threading this? You see how God's working this? Are you connecting the dots of how God is operative here? And in a society where we allow the news to simply try to hijack the good news by simply arguing God isn't fixing this, we begin to pose questions to society. Why do you think it needs fixing to begin with? And why is there evil in this world? And how do you explain evil in this world? And get them back to first things with critical questions. And who has the ultimate ability to fix this thing? And here now, God sovereignly superintends, and no matter how Babylon wants to name Zerubbabel, here is this one of the line of David that will lead towards Jesus Christ, which appears, this name does, even in the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, as well as in Luke chapter 3. 
God's got a plan. God's got a purpose. God's got a promise. And it's unfolding here. And he's saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. And you say, well, God, how are you going to do that? What I want you to understand with me, and this is very critical for us to see what's going to come next, is that God uses the past to prepare you and me for the future. And so in order to understand God's plan, what you know I've got to understand is that he will use the past and the history there and uses historical illusions to prepare us for that final day, the day of the Lord. There are three illusions here I want to draw out and try to develop for us under this final deliverance. If your mind were to go back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19, I want you to notice how verse 22 is phrased and how it's linked to that event. Because in verse 22, we are told here that this was to be done to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. And you say, but Gary, how does that relate to Sodom and Gomorrah? God would be speaking as he looks back upon that entire experience to a statement that he was making with regard to Sodom and Gomorrah. And you see in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and in verse 23, God would say this in reference to the past and preparation for the future. The whole land burned out with brimstone and sought. Nothing sown, nothing growing, where no plant can sprout. Listen to the commentary that comes next over what occurred there. An overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now look at the wording on the screen. The word overthrow in that future day is the very same word which was used to describe what God did in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah. The region of Sodom and Gomorrah, as you and I would know, was a region of hardened homosexuality. As we've studied in the series on same-sex marriage, hardened homosexuality in the culture is symptomatic of hardened unbelief through the culture. Charles Finney was making his way into New York. And there was a man by the name of Abraham that contacted him and asked if he would come to minister in his particular town in western section of New York. Finney arrived on the scene and was praying that the Lord would give him a text. He had not chosen his subject up until that point feeling that he needed to wait until he was able to assess the needs of that region. Finally, he settled on one. It came out of a passage in Genesis. Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. And Finney knew that it came from the story of Abraham and Lot and the city of Sodom. So Finney got up and in his own way presented that story and challenged people in their relationship to God. Now people were pushing back on everything that was being said and presented initially. 
But the Holy Spirit was doing something of significance within that setting. And some of them began to repent and put faith and trust in Christ, and then more and then more and more were finding peace with God. Finney was wondering why the Lord seemed to have laid that text upon his heart. He later discovered why the people had initially been upset with the text. His biographer tells us, quote, the place was known as Sodom. And the only man who was there to see the condition and then bring in a man such as Finney was a man who contacted Finney whose name was Abraham. He knew that God had given him the text as he prayed. Now, what fascinates me about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and you can read about it in Genesis chapter 18 and again in verse 19, is that initially God had delivered a, a warning as to what he would do. And then furthermore, through intercessory prayer on Abraham's part, the day would come when God in his grace would remove certain people within Lot's family out of that city. And then as a result, justice came down upon that region. There was mercy in the warning. There was grace in the rescue. There was then justice upon that land. Grace, getting what we don't deserve. Mercy, not getting what we do deserve. Justice, getting what we deserve. This is the operating trio that God utilizes to be able to execute his strategy, no matter in what time, in what place, in what setting. But not only do you see here the overthrow of the throne of the kingdoms, and Zerubbabel's thinking at this point, and he's saying, but I remember the stories of, my, of, of David and Solomon who were on that throne. And Babylon has renamed me Zerubbabel, but you are saying in essence that you overthrow the kingdoms, and you are maintaining the throne. And magi from the east are going to come to Jerusalem and ask that question, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And there will be a Herod who's a king. And Herod and all the people are all shook up. And God says to Zerubbabel via Haggai, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth in verse 21. And so we now allow for the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and their threefold justice, grace, mercy trio to help us to understand the way God works, but we don't end there. It's a tremor. It's a tremor of the past of what is still to come regarding the future. Because now you and I find that there's a second significant historical illusion here. Because it goes on to say at this point to overthrow the chariots and the riders. Do you see it in verse 22? It's right there. What historical illusion is he utilizing now? You remember the story of what took place when the Israelites were delivered from captivity in Egypt? And how God had paved the way by opening the waters 
And as the Israelites made their way through the Red Sea, as the waters had been parted, then the waters then descended upon the Egyptian soldiers that were making their way trying to recapture the Israelites. Moses and the people of Israel put this together in song, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And now what God is saying via Haggai is that just like I worked in Sodom and Gomorrah, and just as I worked through the Red Sea story, so it will be in that final day where there will be justice, where we will understand grace, where we'll ponder mercy. When the plagues erupted in Egypt, that was mercy. That was God's evangelistic statement to the Egyptians that their gods was not the God. These were tremors. They were warning shots. Mercy. Not getting what we do deserve. But then there would come a time where what would happen is that Moses would lift his hands and the Israelites would cross the Red Sea, and that's grace. And then when the waters would come down upon the Egyptians, that would be justice, getting what they deserve. So now you've got the threefold, not getting what we do deserve, getting what we don't deserve, getting what we do deserve, all tied to this story, and it ties furthermore with the cross of Jesus Christ, where mercy had been communicated via prophets of prior times. Justice comes down upon sin. Grace is given towards sinners as we put our faith and trust in the God who connects the dots of past, present, and future. It happened in 86. Now, you see, normally the flight from Nassau to Miami took Walter Wyatt Jr. only 65 minutes. But on that December day of 86, He attempted it after thieves had looted the navigational equipment in his beach craft. With only a compass and a handheld radio, Wyatt flew into the skies blackened by storm clouds, the writer puts it. And when his compass began to gyrate, Walter concluded he was headed in the wrong direction. He flew his plane below the clouds, hoping to spot something, but soon he knew he was lost. He put out a mayday call, which brought a Coast Guard Falcon search plane to lead him to an emergency landing strip only six miles away. And suddenly, Wyatt's right engine coughed its last and died. The fuel tank had run dry. And around 8 p.m., Wyatt could do little more than glide the plane into the water. Keep thinking Red Sea. Wyatt survived the crash, but his plane disappeared quickly, leaving him bobbing in the water in a leaky life vest. With blood on his forehead, Wyatt floated on his body when suddenly he felt a hard bump against his body. Shark had followed him, and when Wyatt kicked the intruder and wondered if he would survive the night, he managed to stay afloat for the next ten hours. 
In the morning, Wyatt saw no airplanes, but in the water, a dorsal fin was headed for him. Twisting, he felt the hide of a shark brush against him. In a moment, two more bull sharks sliced through the water toward him. Again, he kicked the sharks, and they veered away, but he was nearing exhaustion. Then he heard the hum of a distant aircraft. When it was within a half mile, he waved his orange vest, and the pilot, the pilot dropped a smoke canister and radioed the cutter Cape York 12 minutes away. Quote, Get moving, cutter. There's a shark targeting the sky. Unquote. As the Cape York pulled alongside Wyatt, I love what comes next. A Jacob's ladder was dropped over the side. Wyatt climbed wearily out of the water onto the ship where he fell to his knees, praised his God, kissed the deck. He had been saved. Now there you have the Israelites who've been saved. The water's been parted. By God's grace, the Israelites pass through. In God's justice, the waters then descend upon the Egyptian soldiers. And then you go to the cross of Jesus Christ and you ponder how justice and grace were operative simultaneously in what God was doing. And now you see how the historical illusion of the past prepares you for the work of Jesus Christ that was still to come. And you are awed because you realize that these were God's merciful warning signals. The Sodom and Gomorrah story at the beginning of verse 22. The Egyptians in relationship to the Israelites and the overthrow of the chariots and their riders in the second part of verse 22. But God's not done with this story. Because it goes on to say, And overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. And you're saying, but Gary, by the sword of his brother? What's he talking about? Poetically, what he has done at this point is simply transferred you all the further in time to that point when the Midianites, a terrorist organization in essence, attacked the Israelites in their own land, on their own turf. And once again, in that story as well, mercy connected to justice, connected to grace, is operative. Mercy? Like in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Like in the plagues of Egypt. Now in the story of the attack upon the Jews in the land of Israel by the Midianites... Why, in Judges chapter 7, verse 13, God in his mercy even warned the Midianites, the terrorist organization of that day. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent, struck it so it fell, and turned it upside down that the tent lay flat, and his comrade, you can almost see the sweat flowing down his face. He answered, 
There is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. And you say, but Gary, it says everyone by the sword of his brother. In Judges chapter 7, verse 21, after this cry, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. And they ran out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And what we find is that a terrorist organization was self-defeating. The soldiers turned on one another. You simply can't ignore when you look past and begin to understand the significance of what's occurred here. In all three stories, you saw the trio of justice, grace, and mercy. Operative. Prepping people for what the mission of Messiah would be all about at that cross. It was September 28, 1986. Heavy rains flooded low-lying areas of the Midwest. Two years prior, a flood, many recall, as the Memorial Day Massacre claimed the lives of 20 people in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Small creeks, drainage ditches became killer currents. As the heavy rains fell on that recent September night, one such area, a writer puts it, began to flood. And with the memory of that tragic evening of two years ago in their minds, law enforcement officers blocked off an exceptionally dangerous street where several had been drowned. The officer parked his car in front of the rising waters to prevent any from risking their lives. But get this. Nonetheless, cars drove around the barricade into the swift water. No regard was given to the warnings of the officer. These motorists took safety into their own hands proceeded as they pleased, and died as a result. There was grace in the warning. Now, what we find here in these three stories is that God, in essence, is prepping people for the way in which mercy, justice, and grace operate in the ministry of Messiah. And so you look at the final deliverance promised by God, Now you say, and who is it that we need to be looking for to fulfill this final deliverance? Then notice in verse 23, the personal descriptions provided by God. This is your Jesus. This is your Messiah. This is the Christ. And notice what unfolds. On that day, speaking of that final day, Interestingly enough now, we are informed, declares the Lord of hosts. In the Hebrew, the Lord of hosts means literally the Lord of the armies. The very same description that Nebuchadnezzar used to describe himself as commander-in-chief over the Babylonian forces that destroyed that temple, and now these people are trying to figure out a way to get enough energy to be able to rebuild that temple. Who is the Lord of the armies? On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you 
O Zerubbabel, my servant. Notice the first of the three descriptions. O Zerubbabel, my servant. And the person that would have been reading scriptures at that point in time would have had to reflect upon the fact that that was the very title that would be used to describe Messiah. Why, all the way from Isaiah chapter 41 through chapter 66, Messiah is described as the servant of the Lord. And now what God is saying is that this one from the line of David, through Zerubbabel, who you and I know was born in Bethlehem, the one, the wise men, the Gentiles described as king of the Jews, that would cause such a shaking within that region. This one, God described as my servant. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, verse 45. It's to the line of Zerubbabel. So now you look for this Messiah who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the Jews overlooked this whole idea of being a servant. They just simply wanted one to sit on the throne, but they didn't have this idea that this was a leader's servant who would be sitting on that throne via resurrection. But now there's a second description. And here it comes at us. And make you, and make you like a signet ring. So when you and I now look at that at this point, we're overawed at what God is saying. He is going to take this Messiah, and he's communicating through this message. The signet ring was significant to the Jewish people because right before the Israelites had lost temporarily their land, the signet ring had been taken from the last of their kings of that time period, Jehoiakim, in Jeremiah 22, verse 24 through 27. And they might think all is lost because he and the people had sinned so greatly against God that God himself would say to Jehoiakim in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 24 through 27, that Jehoiakim would have no offspring. They would remain childless, he and his spouse. Does that mean that all is lost? What God did at this point was to shift away from the line of David through Solomon and instead give the signet ring to another one of David's descendants through his son Nathan. The messianic line was preserved. The seal, the authority, the legitimacy of the government that was to come were maintained and preserved for the one you and I know as Jesus, the one who came into this world and the Magi, not the Jews, but Gentiles, would appear in Jerusalem and ask of the one born king of the Jews, and they would come from the very region by which the Israelites had previously been taken into captivity. The very region that was named Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel. There would come a time down the road when Jesus Christ is making his way to where? Jerusalem. To enter what? The temple. 
And the people will be crying out, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. And the signet ring is still operative, you see. Hosanna to the son of David. There will come a time when Jesus Christ, furthermore, is standing standing before the political authorities of that day. And as he stood before the governor, governor, the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, Jesus said, you've said so. And after having been flogged and placed upon that cross over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is, not claimed to be, this is Jesus the king of the Jews. And when he died, there was an earthquake and everything was, what? Shaken up. Another precursor. And do you see how first coming and second coming connect together here? And how the signet ring is still operative. And now, after 1948, Israel, the Jewish people, have regained nationhood? Are you thinking about the signet ring? Because there will come a time where on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And now that final day is tied to this personal description. And you're beginning to see the plot line of the entire scope of God's redemptive strategy unfolding in front of your very eyes in just a few verses. Zerubbabel, my servant, that is a messianic phrase. Make you like a signet ring. That's a messianic phrase. That is a personal description. And he ends, for I have chosen you. God has set apart the second member of the Trinity to put this plan in action. Declares, not the Nebuchadnezzar of hosts, the Lord of hosts. And now you see how first coming and second coming all come together. And how Bethlehem leads to Calvary, and Calvary leads to the resurrection, and the resurrection points towards that second coming, and this entire messianic plan comes all together. Meanwhile, the paper continues to scream, and front page headline, God isn't fixing this? Tie past, present, future together and understand the entire scope of the Bethlehem story. Let's stand together. We take four verses to scan the scope of history. We look in the past and we allow the past to inform us with regard to the future. How 
mercy and justice and grace are woven into the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Through the Egyptians and the Israelite rescue mission. On to the Midianites and Gideon. So we see that final deliverance, Father, and we tie it to this personal description of the Messiah, the one known as my servant, the one is known as the signet ring, the one known as the chosen one. And we take a deep breath as we look at the chaos of this world. And if we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, He's the God who fixes it. And what he can do historically and what he can do globally, he can do personally. In a family, in a life, as we put our faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, is our Savior and Lord. Thank you for the magnitude and scope of who you are and what you've done. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.